1: Get ready to laugh
0: out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com.
1: Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a super Tuesday, although it's coming out on Thursday, special. Uh, Something I've been wanting to do is actually not look at the election exactly, but think about the presidencies, the likely presidencies of the two leading Democrats. And at this point, as the race is, I think, quite clearly collapsed down to Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, it is the time to do that. So I'm joined by my colleague and friend and Vox co-founder and Weed's co-host, Matt Iglesias, to have that conversation. But before we jump into this, I want to quickly talk about two jobs we're hiring for at Vox, which are both, I think, great jobs and will be of interest to to this community, but are only going to be open for applications for a limited time. So, So please do listen up. We are hiring for a politics reporter and a race reporter. Both of these are going to be key roles in the Vox newsroom. Uh, We are looking for people of diverse backgrounds. That could be journalistic backgrounds, but it could also be that, you know, you're a political scientist or you have been doing activist or government work and you want to make a jump, um, that you can kind of show us that you really understand the issues you're going to be covering here backwards and forwards in a deeper way that will allow you to do great journalism on them. But we are open to people who will need some training on the journalism side if they're bringing a lot on the knowledge and analytical and experience side. So we're looking for people journalism background, but you can also apply if you have another kind of background that is going to be particularly relevant here. You can find all the information for these jobs at voxmedia.com careers, or just go to voxmedia.com and find the careers tab. But again, I think these are only going to be open listings for another week or so. So you have to apply quickly. This is going to be the only time I bring it up on the show. Um, but if this is for you or somebody you know, please let them know. Go to voxmedia.com careers. All that said, here is a conversation about the Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders presidencies, how they would be similar, how they'd be different with Matt Iglesias. Matt Iglesias, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. So let's start with the Biden and Bernie presidencies. I want to skip over Super Tuesday for a minute. How do you think they'd actually be different? Let's say they're both a president and they both have 51 Democratic votes in the Senate and uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. What do you think would be different in their presidencies? I mean, foreign policy would be different. That's a big thing because if Biden frames himself on foreign policy as chair of Senate Foreign Relations. Um, But Sanders is probably a much bigger break than he is. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's,
0: it's a big deal. And I think, you know, voters keep indicating very strongly that they don't care about this. So the candidates don't talk about it that much. But if you think about like. The degrees of freedom that a president has. There's just much more in the national security domain than in the domestic policy domain. So, like who specifically the
1: president is makes a big difference there. Go through the difference that they would offer on foreign policy. Okay.
0: You know, Biden is very much a torch carrier for the internationalist tradition in American uh, foreign policy. He strongly believes in the value of America's traditional alliances. He's not like a crazy hawk, but he is a believer in the global military footprint of the United States, in the idea that not necessarily we should start tons of wars everywhere, but we should have the capacity to start tons of wars everywhere, that that's really important, right? And that we should be very involved in things like the civil war in Syria or the civil war in Libya, And, you know, people in that internationalist camp wind up having nuanced disagreements about exactly how should we be involved in this, like which civil wars are the ones we should put ground troops in, and when should we do no-fly zones instead, and when should we do sanctions. But they're in a consensus that it's like everything should be our business. There should be military bases everywhere. There should be an alliance system everywhere that— Governments who don't want to be part of the American alliance system are really bad. And they will often cast this as a question about authoritarianism, like they really don't like Hugo Chavez because he's an authoritarian, but they'll be incredibly friendly to other authoritarian regimes like in the UAE and Qatar. And it's really about the the alliance system, that if you're in the system, you're one of the good guys. And if you're out of the system... You're one of the bad guys and that the national security problems of the countries in the system, like if Saudi Arabia doesn't like what Iran is doing in Yemen, that's like something we should be engaged with. And Bernie doesn't believe any of that. He is much less hostile to like – left-wing regimes that want to opt out of Pax Americana. He is much more hostile to authoritarian regimes that want to be part of this, uh, you know, system. He talks not in a super specific way, but in like a broad way that he thinks the defense budget is much too large, that it should be something more like an agency that defends the United States against military threats rather than this, this huge sweeping global tool. And... We see time and again that, like, every president delivers more continuity with his predecessor's foreign policy than he said he was going to. So I don't think, like... Bernie would necessarily deliver the, like, full, total sweeping sea change. But he, he like, really disagrees. And it, Donald Trump, in a different way, also really disagrees with this internationalist consensus that has held up for a long time, whereas Biden, even more so than than Obama, really, is, like, a, a pillar of this. Like, he talks all the time about, like, I've been on the phone with blah, 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 and he'll, like, name lots of foreign leaders nobody's heard of or cares about. Because, like, Joe Biden really cares. Like, he chaired the foreign relations. Committee, he did a lot of that kind of relationship maintenance work for Obama, where it's like, you gotta send somebody to the thing, someone's gotta talk to the regional security conference. Like Joe Biden, Joe Biden likes that stuff and he he believes profoundly in it.
1: But but there's something interesting there. And one thing I want to do, sort of as we talk about this, is keep Obama as a frame of reference, because the way that Biden will differ from Obama, I think is actually under-discussed given how much he has based his campaign on Obama nostalgia. And then the way Bernie differs from Obama is interesting. But a role that Biden played in the Obama administration, which is somewhat contrary to his long term reputation, is he was often the skeptic in the room against the military. So famously, there was a debate about whether or not Obama should support what the military was recommending uh, around a surge of troops into Afghanistan. Biden was the contrary voice in the room. Obama ended up moving closer to the military, though though not all the way to the recommendations. Um, Similarly, somewhat famously, uh, Biden was against the bin Laden raid, um, which was another more cautious base. And it's a little unclear when you read accounts of all this, what Biden was doing, because it gets fuzzed a little bit with the idea that maybe Biden was simply trying to create space for Obama to, to make other decisions. But a distinction between Obama and Biden is that Obama came into office understood to be anti-Iraq war, which Biden supported the Iraq war. But in office, he, I think one of the criticisms you hear of him was he was not cowed by the military, but he was maybe overly respectful of it and brought in people like Robert Gates. And, and, and there was just a generalized sense that Obama was a little too on board with them, whereas Biden, he doesn't dislike the military by any means, but He, as a longtime senator, seems frustrated by the influence the military holds over uh, American foreign policy, whereas Bernie Sanders, to to the point you're making, is actually somewhat actively hostile to the role the military plays in American politics, like not frustrated by it, but really thinks you should cut the defense budget dramatically, really thinks you should have, you know, beaten your swords into plowshares. So I think there's a—I can't really say, because Biden has been all over the map on different questions, what his foreign policy would be exactly, but— He seems like somebody who has certainly the internal capacity to trust his own judgment in a way that Bernie Sanders in a very different way does. Uh, And you can imagine both of them deviating pretty sharply from Obama on certain issues. Yeah, I mean, one way that Biden would just be different from most – normally, like, people talk about experience at
0: some point in a presidential campaign. But, like, almost every president seems – woefully underqualified for the commander-in-chiefing parts of the job. And Biden, if he becomes president, would like George H.W. Bush before him um, or maybe Richard Nixon in 1968 be one of those exceptions, like the guy who like he has been in the room where it happens on like big foreign and defense policy calls throughout eight years of Obama's administration. He was a, you know, second tier but important player in foreign policy uh, during George W. Bush's administration. So he clearly has a lot of self-confidence. Like, my interpretation, at least, of his role in the Obama administration was that he was there to be that the heavy, right? That, like, Obama was there and he was, like, this new president, this young guy. He had a lot of, you know, aides. Like, like Ben Rhodes did a lot of his foreign policy stuff, but he was, like, an aspiring playwright or something before he he joined up with, with the campaign. And, like, Biden was somebody who could argue with the generals and like stage the debate and then Obama would make his call. And, you know, Biden in that sense is like a ready from day one guy. Bernie has like his strongly held views but also has never been involved as a decision maker in these kinds of things. Like he's never um, sat around the table with the top brass to, like, have a fight about something. And I think we don't really know, you know, like, the nature of of Bernie's campaign is that he's, like, promising to go to 11 on everything. And we know, like, that's not how the world works. Like, one reason Obama let himself get sort of rolled by the military on Afghanistan is that he was trying to do all these other things. And he made the calculus, you know, as I think one does, that, like, do I want to pick a huge fight with the entrenched military establishment in which, like, who knows? Like, maybe I'm wrong anyway, or should I just let them do what they want, see what happens, and I can focus on my health care bill, right? So like to me, the, that's like the big mystery hanging over the Sanders administration. Like is he actually going to pick a huge diplomatic fight with Israel or is he going to try to do a Green New Deal or is he going to try to do Medicare for all or is he really going to try to do all those things simultaneously? My intuition is that a lot of this foreign policy stuff will – Fall by the wayside since his his passion is in the domestic reform. But still, he will respond to international events with a desire to like not be getting into new wars, whereas Biden will respond to crises with not even necessarily like hawkish instincts, but again, as I say, like internationalist ones, like he he will he will really care, you know, like what these problems are and like, what can we do? How can we be more involved?
1: But I would call this and, and I do think this is an important distinction that Biden, I think, will respond to international events with heroic instincts. That if you if you read Biden's books, which I, I have done, like he's, among other things, incredibly proud of the role he played in Bosnia, right, in trying to push the Clinton administration to, to, to do an intervention, which I think looking back was the right thing to do. He's very proud of that. It's something that informed his thinking on Iraq later, I think much for the worse. But Biden is somebody who is interested in the heroic idea of American foreign policy and the American foreign policy president, right? The the person who stands there at the moment of deciding and make sure America stands up for its traditional role in the world and its values. Whereas I don't think Bernie Sanders looks at it that way at all, that I think he would see his presidency as successful on foreign policy if it was non-interventionist, if it de-emphasized the role of the military in American life and in American foreign policy. And if he just sort of didn't create any big disasters, that it's never been his big focus. I'm like, you I'm a little skeptical that he would end up picking a huge fight with Israel. But I think what he would probably do, which ultimately is more or less what Obama did on this too, is annoy Israel by criticizing them and not get anywhere on it. Not to say somebody else is going to get anywhere on it. But Biden, I think, is probably going to do another one of these where you try to get a deal that you're probably not ultimately going to get with Israel. He put a lot of effort into big foreign policy accomplishments, whereas I think Sanders in a deeper way would put a lot of effort into not having foreign policy interfere with his big domestic accomplishments.
0: Well, And and Sanders has what I would consider a more realistic view of like what has America's traditional role in the world been, whereas Joe Biden has a very romantic view view of it. but this is one of these things where, like in d c, what I would say is the realistic view is coded as like the fringy and ridiculous one, and the sort of preposterous romantic one is coded as the serious and and respectable one. But like I, I think it's correct, right? If you just imagine generic foreign crisis X we don't know what it'll be just shit happens in in life biden's instinct is going to be that like we need to bring the tools of american power to bear to fix this because america is good and our using of those tools is good and it's not just that like bosnia worked out for the best but that like as a rule doing more has been good and when there have been errors it's been because we have done too little and bernie is like a cranky old leftists who I grew up with. And he's like always got on the brain like coup in Iran and genocide in Guatemala and like, you know, a, a million other things. And he's his instinct is gonna be like, well, look, like, do we do we have to do something here? Is this like an emergency that like absolutely requires a response? And I think when you look at these different crises that pop up, it's like nine times out of 10, the answer is no, right? If we just want to stay out of it, like we can totally get away with that. And terrible things often happen, but like also terrible things often happen when we when we do get involved. And so to me, I mean, when when I wrote my like case for Bernie Sanders piece, like I lean heavily on this foreign policy piece. Like I have strong feelings about this. Um as does Bernie Sanders, I think it's in a practical sense, like where it makes the most difference who the president is. And to the extent that it's been floated in the campaign, it's been in this like weird way as like, did Bernie make a gaffe when he said that fidel castro boosted literacy but like that dispute like which is not about fidel castro really it's about this question of like has the united states of america been a constructive presence in latin america throughout the cold war era or has it actually been a quite like malign and destructive one and sanders is saying like the thing you're not really supposed to say which is that it's in many ways been a malign and destructive one
1: so I want to move on now, but but not yet to the sort of big domestic agendas. I want to talk about staffing these administrations. This is a big one here because, number one, both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are quite elderly. Joe Biden is 77 and Sanders is 78. So no president can do everything. But these two presidents in particular, I think, are not going to be able to do everything. Joe Biden, like I will say one of my biggest concerns about him is simply that I am not 100 percent convinced that he has the energy level for the presidency at this point, if you watch him in some of the debates and so on. But so that all just suggests, as always, staffing is going to be really important. Talk a bit about the difference between how we might expect a Joe Biden administration to be staffed and how we might expect... Or even think about a Bernie Sanders administration being staffed.
0: You know, here's where Biden talks all the time about continuity with Obama and, you know, how much like best friends they are. And to an extent like that gets, I think, exaggerated. But on the staffing point is, I think, where you really get to it, right? For any Democratic president, you just like imagine a Democrat becomes president, the most obvious thing is going to be to go back to the well of people who served in important roles in the Obama administration, give them similar or slightly higher ranking jobs. Uh, For Biden, who was part of that administration, who had former Senate staffers of his scattered different agencies, who had people rotate into his VP's office, that's really what you're going to get, right? It'll have been only a four-year interregnum. He personally was there. A lot of those guys are going to come back. You also see that, you know, Biden's campaign does a lot of traditional bundler fundraising type stuff, you know, where lobbyists who used to be senior staffers for congressional Democrats put fundraisers together, things like that. To the extent that like the establishment, quote unquote, means anything. To me, it does mean that, that kind of like, nexus of Democrats who migrate back and forth onto K Street and other business community type things, that that wing of the party will have its, its share of the pie in a Biden administration.
1: To be kind of specific on this, so Ron Klain was the chief of staff for Vice President Al Gore then he was the chief of staff for Vice President Joe Biden. He's the only person to be chief of staff to two vice presidents, and he's a, a top advisor to Biden. He was also Barack Obama's Ebola czar, where he's considered to have done a very, very good job on that and would be, feel better, frankly, if he were there on coronavirus right now. But he will be presumably very high up in a Biden administration or Tom Donilon, or another version of this is Jake Sullivan, who is Hillary Clinton's top policy advisor, and if she had won the presidency in 2016, would have been very high in, up in, in her administration. Jake Sullivan worked with Biden very closely in the Obama administration, and he's the kind of person who, who might come back. So I saw David Sirota, who's a speechwriter and a sort of conflict-oriented guy, uh, tweeting – a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, I should say – tweeting about how you know, what nobody will really say is that Joe Biden is a full employment plan for the Democratic establishment, and that's why they all support him. And among other things, putting aside the strategic dimension of that um, comment from a, a Sanders staffer – there's a truth to it, but it's a banal one. I think a lot of people will say this actually, that Joe Biden is likely to bring back the Democratic establishment. And something that he's very honest about is that he thinks the Obama administration and the Democratic establishment are good. And that's why he's going to put them in all these top roles. What is actually a little less clear is who Bernie Sanders will bring in. um, Elizabeth Warren, who is sort of in Sanders's lane in a lot of ways, her staffing is much better understood. She's close with the Roosevelt Institute. She's a much bigger academic network. Bernie Sanders has always had an unusual grab bag of staffers. They come from very different places. A lot of them kind of uh, cycle in and out pretty quickly. It's much less obvious to me who his bench would be made up
0: of. Right. And, you know, if if things had broken another way, right, if we hadn't had the snake emojis and, you know, all this kind of stuff, I would say, look— you know, if we just, like, roll back the clock six months, like, if Bernie Sanders somehow becomes president, Elizabeth Warren is going to be the single most important person in the transition simply because you, like, need a credible answer to the question Sorota raises, which is, like, if not the Democratic establishment, like, then, then who, right? Because y- you can't run the government with, like, the staff of Jeff Weaver's comic book shop. Um, You need some people and it's a big sort of hazy void hanging over the the Sanders campaign it's not like important again to like regular voters but as I try to analyze like what is at stake here clearly the Staffing stakes do matter it is keenly felt by people in DC that like this is one of the things in the mix and like David is not wrong about that but it's not obvious to me what Sanders is answer actually is because he doesn't have the way Warren does this kind of like big kind of para organization. Uh, A lot of his policy documents are a little bit slapdash. Um, The whole ethos of his campaign is to not set priorities and to basically not say no to any kind of like left activist entity, um, except for the anti-dairy people who've been popping up at events because he's from Vermont. So it doesn't tell you a lot about like what he would really do. One specific area that like I have gives me some pause is that, you know, he has just a kind of tossed off line in his climate change plan that's like and also all nuclear power is bad, which makes it seem like he will appoint people to uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission who believe and that they will have actually a fair amount of discretionary power there. Something, you know, I think people don't Fully think about, but it's it's totally possible that an anti-nuclear, anti-fracking administration, paired with the realities of congressional government, will lead to higher carbon dioxide emissions than a more moderate administration would. But that's like
1: one very particular weedsy arm of the government. But let me zoom, let me zoom this out on, on Sanders, because in my reporting on his campaign, what you see at this point, which is not true in 2016, is that there are basically two Bernie Sanders operations that are working. With each other, sometimes in parallel uh, to each other, sometimes in tension with each other. so one is a traditional Bernie Sanders operation, which is one, it's it's built around him. This is your Jeff Weavers, your um his policy guy Warren Gunnell, that kind of person, um David Soroto, who was a speechwriter for him back in the day and has come back. These are people who are very hostile to the democratic establishment as one might think about it. they um they, have sometimes worked for other candidates than Bernie Sanders, but they're they, they are not sort of primary, like mainstream Democratic, Democratic staffers. Um, and Bernie Sanders for them is both somebody they admire, but also at oftentimes like a vehicle to go to war with the Democratic establishment they loathe. But since 2016, Sanders has also built a, a sort of internal operation which has become very powerful, particularly in his campaign, which is you might almost call it like the dissident wing of the Center for American Progress. So, Faz Shakir, who used to run Think Progress and, and, and you worked with his campaign manager, um, Matt Duss, who was at the Center for American Progress and was a lefty foreign policy guy. We both worked with him with, uh, at the American Prospect, and I have great respect for Matt. He's his foreign policy person now. You see Ari Robinhoff, who I don't I don't think Ari worked at Cap, but he worked for Harry Reid um, and was high up there. He's, I think, deputy chief of staff on the campaign, something like that. So there is also now this operation Sanders is beginning to build that is the people who are high up in key roles with Reid, with Cap, but sort of broke from that world to like support the leftier candidate and try to build something new around him. And sometimes these operations get along, sometimes they don't, is my understanding, but they're quite Different when Sanders was the ranking member on the Senate Budget Committee, he brought in some unusual staffers for that position. So Stephanie Kelton, who's very heavily associated with modern monetary theory and has been on on this show, on um, Matt Stoller, who's become like a, an aggressive Obama critic and 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 somebody who's very focused on monopolies, and they would kind of cycle in and out. That was – like those are very much heterodox players within the the broader democratic ecosphere and like not the kind of people I would expect that like if Faz Shakir is the chief of staff are going to get appointed to be on the NEC or something. And so there's there's something there that I don't know how it would play out. It's not a united front. It's two quite different strains of staffing that are coexisting with each other now. But you could really imagine ending up uh, in tension during a transition.
0: Yeah, I mean, there is definitely a
1: distinction
0: there. I know people sometimes take Trump-Bernie analogies as as offensive, um, and they are obviously different in many, many, many ways. But I think that the staffing issues in the Trump administration are illustrative of the kinds of problems that occur when you have a new president whose core team was motivated by Like, not just preference for your guy, but, like, hostility to the mainstream guys, which is that you can't run the government that way. You need people who have done similar jobs before, which means mainstream people. You need people who are confirmable, which means both deferring to the views of the congressional party, but it also just means in practice appointing some people who are friends and staffers of important members of Congress. And like every administration does that. But like when Obama takes some people from the Hill and puts them in key executive branch jobs, nobody's like, ooh, what's going on? Because it's just Democrats Democrating. Um, but like Trump also winds up needing to do that. Uh, and so, you know, Sanders would have to form a hybrid of things like he would have to whatever he would want to do, like just by necessity, it would wind up being a more mainstream group than you see on the campaign because you've got to deal with the Senate. you got to deal with, with what you have to do. But something we've already seen on the campaign trail is some difficulty in the Sanders operation of turning the ship and saying, like, "Okay, like, we're winning now. So we're just going to, like, be normal Democrats. Like, if you would like to get on board with this, come on board. And you sometimes see in, say, some of Sorota's messaging, right, there's this, like, self-fulfilling prophecy where if it's like if one person who's an establishment Democrat says something bad about Bernie Sanders, the response to that is the only reason this guy said this bad thing is that they all – are terrible and corrupt and are terrified of this coming purge that I am going to orchestrate of all of them. So, of course, when you say that, you wind up with more pushback, right? And then the contrary view is that when somebody who's establishment-y says something kind of nice about Bernie or like, I think that Castro-knock is unfair, like, do you reach out your hand and say, like, yes, we want you on the team? And there's always a concern about that. Like, Trump is super paranoid that people who got on the Trump bandwagon are not actually loyal to him and are trying... Trying to undermine his administration from within. So I think it's not totally crazy that when Bernie is riding high, his like the people who've been with him through thick and thin, you know, still worry about other people. But also, like it's politics. You need to like build bridges, you need to expand, uh, y- you need to do things like that. If you look literally at Sanders's like, Proposals, like what he says he's gonna do through the executive branch. It's of course very expansive. And the big problem with all of it is that it's written as if they don't realize that you have to be able to win court cases, you know? And I don't think like I, I think that they do know that, but not everybody who reads the documents knows that. It's like I can write a hot take. That's like the executive branch has the power to unilaterally dismiss all student debt. And I can even find a law professor who says that that's true. But like you need a circuit court judge and probably a circuit court judge appointed by Donald Trump, right? And... Something that they dealt with a lot in the Obama administration was they didn't want to lose tons and tons of lawsuits, so they were a little bit on the conservative side in terms of what they wanted to do. Bernie doesn't seem like somebody who would care about something like that and would be fine if people wrote lots of rules that get tossed out in courts and then he gets to have a fight about it. Um, but but to me, that's like probably what you would see is a lot of uh, very expansive efforts that get smacked back.
1: Well, it's also broader point on this around how they'll approach the Senate and this is a little bit to do with staffing but it has a little bit to do just with their their generalized approaches to politics so Something that happened over the past two weeks that I think contributed pretty substantially to Biden's performance on both in South Carolina and Super Tuesday is he began doing something that he wasn't really doing before, which is racking up key important endorsements. So he got endorsed by Representative Jim Clyburn, who's the most important Democrat in South Carolina. That helped him kind of stomp through the South Carolina primary. And then in the week after that, he got Amy Klobuchar dropped out and endorsed him. Pete Buttigieg dropped out and endorsed him. Beto O'Rourke Uh, endorsed him, having already dropped out, and Harry Reid endorsed him. And that all contributed to Biden winning Texas and Minnesota, where he was not favored a week ago, and then having in general a strong performance. And something that was really striking was that you saw this huge amount of pushback from Bernie people online that like, this was the establishment cabal, it was a conspiracy, you know, Barack Obama made them do this, it was all this stuff. But that was actually Joe Biden, who has not done a good job with a lot of the public-facing dimensions of campaigning, like articulating a vision or debates or speeches, doing the thing that he has always said he's going to be able to do as president and which he, to be fair to him, really did do at past points as a, as a legislature – as a legislator and a vice president – which is winning over mainstream Democrats to support his agenda, even at some political risk to themselves. I mean, for Amy Klobuchar to drop out before Minnesota, for Pete Buttigieg to not even try to go through Super Tuesday, given that he had performed quite well in Iowa and New Hampshire, those were surprising decisions to me. And Biden was able to cajole them, promise them, persuade them, make a deal with them. Like, we don't know what happened in those conversations, but whatever it was, it worked. And This is something that Sanders traditionally has not been very good at. Um, He passed a lot of amendments when he was in the House, but he doesn't have big legislation to his name. Um... The people around him do not like to cut deals like this. And when people come on to his bills, they're not treated all that well. So a lot of different Democrats signed on to his Medicare for all bill. But then when they did something that's quite normal, which is say, well, I I agree with this bill, but I want to soften this area or negotiate here. I don't want to abolish all private insurance. They got treated like traitors, Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, ultimately Elizabeth Warren. And so there's a real way in which one of the things I think is going to be very different about them as campaigners and but also as presidents is that Joe Biden is very comfortable with legislative deal making. Like before you ever get to the question of you're doing this all through executive orders and you got to go to court, the question is like, can you pass some bills? And what Biden has I think a real claim to being able to do is build coalitions among Democrats where he figures out what the mainstream of the party is and what he can get through it. And and he tries to fit and he tries to actually run that play. Whereas Bernie, I think, has a different view, which is that you ask for the biggest thing you can imagine. You use that to excite an outside organizing force. And then you leverage that outside organizing force to force internal, like inside legislators to bend the knee to whatever you want. And the problem with that theory is it doesn't seem to work. And it's not clear he has a plan B. He's not bringing in new voters at the rate that would make you think he can do that kind of external organizing. And if you're not doing that, then you really do need to convince an Amy Klobuchar or whatever that this is in their best interest. But he wasn't, at the time when he really did look dominant in the primary, able to bring some unexpected people over to his side, which would have been a very big signal that would have helped him consolidate among Democrats. And so there's this way in which I think – and I wrote a piece to this effect that Sanders is still running something of an insurgent campaign even after he became the front runner in a way that hurt him. Like he had to move to being the leader of the Democratic Party and for all kinds of probably internal and external reasons, he wasn't able to make that shift, whereas Biden really is – Doing that, And I think this is something that would carry into their administrations, that Sanders would ask for a lot and potentially not get that much with Congress, whereas Biden would ask for a lot less, sometimes ask for things that liberals may not even like, but potentially get at least some of it.
0: Yeah. And I, I, this is an area where I think um, a lot of Sanders supporters have drawn a misleading analogy from Trump, which is that they think that the moral of sort of Polarization in the Trump era is that like once you get in there people take so many like follow the leader cues from elites that everybody all of Republicans in Congress are like terrified of Trump because that's something like liberals say a lot will like attribute various things to congressional Republicans fear of. Of Trump and that therefore Trump is able to do all these different things and they're envisioning when Bernie is president something similar, right, that this fear will emerge and like Amy Klobuchar is not going to want to be on the bad side of Bernie Sanders, so she'll have to fall in line. And I think it would be – it's instructive to look in detail at like what has actually gone on with Trump and congressional Republicans, which is that Trump has abandoned all of his substantive policy disagreements with congressional Republicans, he has also deferred to them on questions of prioritization. So like even when they agreed on what you should do, but Paul Ryan had a different idea about what was more important, he did what congressional Republicans wanted. And congressional Republicans have routinely ignored tossed off legislative proposals that have come out of Trump's Twitter feed. Uh, They have shot down his nominees to positions that they think are important. Given all of that, they have been incredibly steadfast supporters of the Donald Trump administration and protected him from scrutiny and oversight and scandal and democratic efforts to enforce the law and hold him accountable and and things like that. Uh, But that's almost the opposite of what Sanders supporters are envisioning happening with congressional Democrats, right? That like if Sanders comes in and he's incredibly antagonistic to the policy desires of congressional Democrats, then it's not just that he's not going to get things done. He's going to lack a core base of congressional party supporters who help him out of jams and, you know, like grease the skids for him doing the stuff that he most wants to do and i don't know i mean you say that like bernie believes and then you quoted a bunch of things that bernie says um i'm never sure if bernie really believes what he says about some of this stuff uh, because it's so like it's so clearly wrong and bernie has been in congress for a long time um and you know served as as a mayor of of a city and did not like bring socialism to burlington but like I genuinely have no idea, right? If you're supposed to believe that Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris are vile traitors who don't believe at all in Medicare for all because they're pawns of the health insurance industry, um, well, those are three of the five most left-wing senators. So, like, who's voting for this bill in this hypothetical? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense.
1: One of the ways I think the theory goes to, to to give it its due is that they have a very deep Overton window theory of legislating. And you heard um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez make this argument just a couple of weeks ago. I think it was in a, maybe an interview with Huffington Post, or maybe it was just on Twitter. But she said that, look, if we don't get Medicare for all, well, at least by fighting for it, we'll probably get a public option. And that's not so bad. And one of the things that I think actually is a disagreement in the party right now uh, between different Democrats is that... The question of whether or not you should think of legislating as working in that way is a pretty hard one. So I think the way that that implicitly assumes the situation goes is that anything that goes through the legislative process is going to like lose three points off of itself. So if you start with something like that on a one to 10, most conservative to most liberal uh, dimension is at a seven, then at the end, you're going to have a four. If you start with something at a 10, at the end, you'll have a seven. So you better start with something that is a 10. The counterargument to this, which I think people should take seriously and I think is probably correct, is that that model does not imagine the possibility of failure. And most things simply fail. That model assumes that everything gets through and you just lose a little bit along the way. But most things don't get through at all. Most things that presidents propose never even get taken up by the House and the Senate. And so if you start with something that when you bring it to the Senate, it's polling badly and it's DOA, and so it just gets immediately dismissed – well, this people don't come back to you and say, well, you've got all this leverage now. What do you want from us in return? They just move on to whatever they were doing, and you begin to lose support. I mean, and this happened to people like Jimmy Carter. I mean, we've seen this a bunch of different times. And so I think the question, particularly if political revolution is not going to happen, so you're not going to get this huge flood of kind of new voters and organizing that is going to scare people in Kentucky, which, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders has spoken about, but we're just not seeing that manifest itself in the primary then you really have to question, I think, this Overton-Window theory. Um, the... The Joe Biden, and this is also the Barack Obama view, was that you start with something that is compromised down because that is something that will be popular. You start with enough support, and that's where you get your leverage to hopefully get some of it through at the end of the day. Whereas if you start with something that's DOA, you have no leverage. But whoever's right or wrong about this, I think Sanders' view is that you start with something that is bigger and more inspiring and that you can make a better public case for. And in making that public case, you're going to be able to force senators to pass something, even if it's not everything you want.
0: So my view is that it's hard to offer a, like, generalized proclamation on what is right and what is wrong about this. It is definitely true that if Obama had just shown up in Congress one day in 2009 and had said we should abolish private insurance and give everybody a government plan that covers everything for free with no co payments and no deductibles, and uh, I'm not really sure what the pay-fors will be, but it's probably fine because it works in Canada— that, like, that would not have generated constructive legislation. Like, people would have listened to that and be like, Th- those are interesting points that, for example, my colleague Senator Sanders has been raising for years. But, it do- like, it doesn't get you anywhere, right? Because, I mean, as we've discussed on across many platforms here ad nauseum, it is both true in principle— That if they do it in Canada, we can do it here. And also difficult in specific detail to say, like, well, what is it you're going to do? Congress is not going to take up that difficult work unless they actually want to. And they don't. So, like, they just won't do it. And, like, Congress not wanting to do that extends to Senator Bernie Sanders, who has been in Congress all these years, like, not producing incredibly detailed, like, rationing plans. You know, because, like, nobody wants to do that including the advocates. So they just they just won't do it. I think it's probably fair to say that on climate change, if Obama had started with a big stick of like, we're going to use the CPA regulations, unless you guys come to the table with like a carbon pricing plan that addresses industry concerns in a better way, but I am 100% committed to reducing CO2 emissions, that he probably I think would have gotten further than with the effort he did take because he was relying on a big legislative deal. And he, as you say, like most things fail. And so what happened was is it failed and then he had nothing at all and he had to start doing the paperwork and the Administrative Procedure Act stuff. And he had reasons for doing it in the order that he did it, but – it was a deprioritization of the climate issue, right? Like that was the that was the choice that they made to do, and it had a cost versus um, stepping it up, which would have had different kinds of costs, but would have gotten you further in in policy terms. I have never in my life succeeded in getting a, a conversation on that level of detail with anyone in Sanders' world about what they think. They do appear to me—I mean, there's some disagreement about this, but the the sense I have gotten is that what AOC said about the public option does reflect what they think, which is that that all these mainstream Democrats, right, once Bernie Sanders started campaigning for president, all kinds of people started coming out of the woodwork with public option ideas— So I think their interpretation of that is, look, in 2016, there was no interest in the Democratic Party in taking on the insurance industry and pharmaceutical industries by pushing a public option. There had, like, been momentum behind that, and it didn't work out, and they walked away from it. But as soon as, like, the devil Bernie Sanders shows up with his, like, $60 trillion middle class tax increase, suddenly Amy Klobuchar is like, hey, public option, right? And so... If Bernie wins, they think that they will be able to continue to drive that forward and get something done. I think there's like a lot of insight into that description of how the dynamics work. But there's still the part where you need to write the public option bill, decide what it does,
1: whip up support for it. make com- You know, there's, there's like so many more moving pieces. Well, you, you have to at that, some point embrace a compromise. Um, well, one yeah. thing there I just think that is true and I, I think Sanders deserves a lot of credit here but – I think the Overton window theory is a good theory of communication and agenda setting and not often a good theory of legislating. Right. And they they they're getting moved between. I think the legislators don't do enough Overton window movement in the debate and then like the debaters don't do enough deal making in the legislature. And so everybody's partially right in this debate. Um it's not that it it's very much the case that Bernie Sanders has changed the healthcare debate in a, in a dramatic way and then also the case that he has not actually moved what the Senate or even the House appear ready to vote for in a very dramatic way. And like if you if you tried it, it, it may not work. But rather than going sort of around and around, in that, I want to talk about the other side of this, which is that if the criticism of Sanders is that he's not necessarily good at making deals, the criticism you hear of Biden is that he's too good at making deals and that he will often like chase the deal even beyond where you should and accept something that Others don't like this. Many feel this happened with the Bush tax cut deal um, with Harry Reid kind of famously throwing the deal Biden cut into a fire, um, even though it ultimately passed. There was the Cures Act, which passed, I think it was 95 to four, but Sanders and Warren were against it. Warren said this was an act that like got new money for the NIH. It sort of did more to elevate mental health parity, that kind of thing. It expedited approval of certain kinds of drugs and potential breakthroughs, but it did like nothing on pharmaceutical pricing. And a lot of people felt that basically the deal was you got more money and more regulatory relief for pharmaceutical companies, but you didn't make them Give anything for it. And Warren had this line that she said, I'll fight this because I know the difference between compromise and extortion. And like she said, this is extortion. So talk a bit about that side of Biden, like the like the not just the deal maker, but like the, the overly deal maker.
0: I mean, Biden wants to get things done. Um I there was a... <laughs> I I once saw a thing. It was like an old Chuck Schumer ad. And and it said he had a passion for legislating, which I think is also true of Joe Biden and is a little bit of a weird personality characteristic. Right. But it's like Biden thinks you should get in there with your sleeves rolled up and get something done. And, And he's even said that, you know, like as a like like a dispositional thing. Right. And what happens is you can make like bad concessions and something like that. And some of this is about substantive policy as well, right? So Democrats tried pretty hard when Obama was president to get a deal in which Social Security benefits would be cut and in exchange taxes on the rich would go up and the the deficit therefore would go down. Left-wing Democrats objected to this idea because they thought it was bad, um, but they're not the reason it didn't happen, right? The reason it didn't happen is that congressional Republicans after dilly-dallying and like – Who knows? Like, for some reason, this took forever, even though it just came back down to they didn't want to agree to any tax increases, which had been their same position all along. An interesting question is, will Republicans have changed their mind about that, right? Has the Donald Trump experience made Mitch McConnell think that actually that Obama-style grand bargain is, in fact, the best deal he can get, that what they thought at the time was We're going to sweep into power, we're going to do entitlement cuts, and we're not going to agree to any tax increases. They have now been in power. They like being in power. Uh, They've appointed all these judges. They've done all this stuff they're very proud of. But to get that power, they had to promise not to cut Social Security benefits because they've become the party of elderly people. So a Biden administration could be a golden opportunity to provide that grand bargain. And, and like many people uh, profoundly believe that deficit reduction is an important and, and moral cause, uh, Joe Biden, I, I, don't, I don't want to be derogatory to him. I don't think he has particularly deep thoughts about macroeconomic policy, uh, but he has a disposition to like want to do big deals and it would be a big deal. Whether or not this is a good idea, it would be a great press conference. Right. At which, like, the president and all the legislative leaders finally take action on America's long simmering entitlement type problem. And, you know, that would be like Bernie Sanders won't do that. Right. Like Sanders, even more so than Obama, will hold the line against these kind of deals. Whereas Biden, it seemed to me to express frustration during the Obama administration that the White House wasn't a little more willing to be like – you know, Republicans can have a tax cut as a treat if that'll let us get something done that that we want, right? And that they, they should have been giving more in order to get more. Whereas Obama spent a lot of his second term just kind of like staring harshly across the mall uh, with nothing at all getting done. It's not unilaterally within the control of the president, but like I think that Biden would be much more willing to indulge Republicans' top priorities if in exchange he could get some different stuff, like what kind of stuff? you know, who knows it's just going to depend what Democrats are like very interest groupy, and so it's going to depend who comes to the table. Uh, but you could imagine a Joe Biden climate plan that who knows what it would do. It would spend x billion dollars on green energy research and in exchange, uh, you know, I don't know, probably something terrible, um but yeah, you and- would do something great, you know uh, whereas like with sanders it's it's actually hard to Im- it's not just that you're not going to have a political revolution. It's like I think you're going to have a lot of stasis.
1: Let me say something about Sanders first and then move back to Biden, because Sanders, he's had one major bill under his name pass, and it was when he was chairing the Veterans Committee. And this was during the period when the the Veterans Health Administration had a huge number of scandals and failures. And so Sanders ended up cutting a deal first with John McCain on veterans issues and then because it needed to go to the House – I want to say the guy's name was Miller. The House Republican who was running veterans at that time. He was a very conservative Republican. And so they they came to a deal where Sanders and Sanders today will say, like, it didn't, you know, wasn't everything I wanted, but, but, you know, it was worth doing that was a bunch more money for veterans' health at the cost of some privatization. And it was very much a Republicans got some of what they wanted, and Bernie got some of what he wanted. But it was like a like a Biden-like deal. You could really have imagined that happening. And John McCain was happy with it, and the Republicans were happy with it, and it actually passed. And I've done some reporting on this. And it's just a it's a very complicated technocratic agreement they came to. And I don't think it like fixed veterans' health forever, but you know, it's probably it seems to have been uh, largely worth doing. And One of the hard things for me to know about Bernie Sanders is which version of Bernie Sanders we would get in office because as you've written many times, he's a much more pragmatic legislator than he gets credit for and he was very much there as a vote when Democrats needed him. At the same time, he was not a very effective legislator in the sense of being able to build coalitions to get the things he wanted to pass actually done. Like you had people in the past, like say Ted Kennedy, who really they themselves were a huge force in Congress and they were able to do things that wouldn't have happened there without them. And, and Sanders doesn't have a lot of that kind of big picture legislating to, to his record. Again, he he did a, he was called the Amendment King in the House. He did a lot of amendments, but he hasn't passed huge bills. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is interesting in this respect because he really just does disagree on some of these issues. One of the the fascinating dimensions of the Democratic primary has been that there has not been as much dispute about the past as you would expect. Because most people agree that the criticisms being made of their past records are correct and they were bad. So – Bernie Sanders got attacked for past um, record on guns and he said sorry. Michael Bloomberg got attacked on stop and frisk and he said sorry. Joe Biden got attacked on Iraq and he said sorry and so on and so forth. Um, but one place where this really isn't true is in the Obama administration era deals. And I've talked to people around Joe Biden about this. And for instance, the Bush tax cut deal, which people on the left are still really angry about because basically a large amount of the tax cuts got locked in. Democrats got higher taxes on the very rich and they got some tax cut and tax rebate and credit, et cetera, things for the poor. But the estate tax was gutted and, and that kind of thing. And a lot of Democrats wanted to let the Bush tax cuts fully expire and then use the resulting economic pain and higher taxes to force Republicans to to, to give a lot more. And people around Biden will continue to say to this day that Biden says that was a good deal. Like he is happy he got it. He thinks he was right. And he thinks the balance of what they got was worth it. And a lot of Democrats simply just disagree with that. And I find that actually useful because there are a lot of these places where what people are really arguing about is isn't apology enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is Joe Biden saying some of the stuff they did on immigration went too far? Is that enough? But here, like, there's just an actual disagreement about what kind of deal is worth taking. You see it on the Cures Act. You see it on that Bush tax cuts deal. And particularly in a world, and we very much might be in this world, where Mitch McConnell is Senate majority leader, either initially in a Biden presidency or after a couple of years, the kinds of deals Joe Biden will strike are just very different than the kinds of deals Bernie Sanders is likely to strike. Although all that said, the kinds of deals Bernie Sanders might strike may be different than the impression we get from Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail. Although Another thing I would say, there's a difference in
0: assessments of the merits of that that Bush tax cut deal, which you should note it has critics on the left, but also like Michael Bennett was really mad about it. Like it's it's, Mm – because it's an interesting dispositional thing. You know, just like how, how did you look at this? But another thing that there is disagreement about there. Well,
1: one note there is a lot of deficit hockey people were right. mad about it. Right. Which is part of why you get the Bennets and so on. Right. It's not just the terms of the deal, but
0: like was it important to do a deal versus a comfort with a certain level of chaos and ambiguity, right? So when I talk to people from the Obama administration who themselves seem to disagree about this deal somewhat, although obviously the faction that liked it, it's not it's not like Joe Biden like did a magic trick and got it passed. Uh, Barack Obama decided it was it was a deal worth taking, but it was controversial inside the administration. And what carried the day, as best I understand it, was a sense that what the lefties wanted them to do was going to be too much chaos and weirdness. That like even if it worked- In a still weak economy. Yeah. That even if it worked, that like it would be a shitty way to run the government, right? To sort of move into a multi-week period of real uncertainty, like tax policy that nobody favored. You're just kind of tumbling over the barrel. You're doing um, brinksmanship and threats. They thought it would be harmful to the economy. But I actually think like on an aesthetic level, it's like not how they think government should go. Like they wanted to do a deal. Right. They thought it was much better to do a deal before the deadline than to go into into crazy town. Um, And there's like there's something to that. Right. Donald Trump has brought a lot of crazy town into the American government, and it bothers a lot of people, right? Even though economic indicators are pretty good, uh, there is a pervasive feeling, not just that like there's disagreement with his policies, but that like this way of running the shop is like really wrong and bad, and we should bring professionals back to it. Um, Sanders, you know, I I think would be – you saw with the VA thing that it's like, When he felt he had to make a deal, like he knows how to count votes, right? He's not like a moron and he's not somebody who's never done legislation before. Uh, But, you know, that was a particular – it was a weird situation where I think – everybody agreed that they really had to get a deal done. There's a lot of other situations where it's like, yeah, you could roll the dice, right? And he's like more of an edgy outsidery kind of guy. He puts less emphasis on the idea that, you know, the the sort of square-jawed men in suits being in charge is is really good and important. He likes a lot of loopy activists. Like I think you'd see them you'd see them try more stuff and that means you would both have more successes and you would have more failures, right? Compared to the sort of Joe Biden like lower the variance. Um it's what he keeps promising, right? Is that like the Biden administration is gonna be very chill, right? Even though like <laughs> even though Joe might return do return to some, normalcy. Right, Joe might do some gaffes, right? But it's like your people aren't gonna be yelling at each other as much. Like he will get some things done with Republicans, or maybe he won't, but like whatever he gets done will just get done. Whereas Bernie is claiming that like we're gonna have people in the streets, we're gonna have mass protests, there's gonna be all kinds of crazy shit happening for, for years and years and years. And of course, activists love that. They don't wanna to be told, okay, go work for me for six months, let's win the election, and then I'm gonna tell you to go home and chill out. Like Bernie's like, we're gonna all govern together and Biden's gonna. You know, try to try to relax.
1: Well, there, there are a couple of things here. One thing that I do think Joe Biden himself underrates, and it is one of the threads of his campaign that really annoys me. When he talks about the Obama administration, it's he talks about it entirely in the first-person singular. And so it's constantly like: the president sent me to get the votes on Obamacare. When he needed a deal, he sent me. When he I covered almost everything under consideration here, and Joe Biden was rarely as central as he makes it out to be. But on some of these deals with McConnell, he actually was. The deals with McConnell are the exception. He's not the guy who got all the stimulus votes. He's really not the guy who passed health care reform, but he's not the guy who got us out of a Like, there's a bunch of weird things, he says, but he did make these deals with McConnell. And one of the things that is very clear to me that happened along the way there is that just between his experience as a legislator and his experience doing those deals, Biden believes in his own deal-making capacity in a very deep way. But again, having covered those deals, it was always obvious that what was happening was that it was politically impossible for McConnell to make the deal with Obama because Obama was the guy that Republicans hated. When Joe Biden is the Democratic president, if he becomes a Democratic president, Joe Biden will be the guy that Republicans hate. He will be the guy they ran against and in, that, in this case, who beat them. And McConnell is not going to want to make deals with him. He's going to, as he did with Obama, say that his top priority is making Joe Biden a one-term president. And so there is a way in which... I think there's going to be less continuity uh, than Joe Biden thinks between the role he was able to play as a dealmaker in the Obama administration and what it would be like for him to be president. I think Joe Biden's critique of Obama, which was known at the time, was that Obama didn't put enough of his personal capital effort and time into cultivating relationships with Senate Republicans and trying to make deals with them. Joe Biden will not make that mistake, but I think he might find there's actually less on offer. But the the flip of this with, with Sanders is that And here is, again, a place where I do think there is some symmetry to Trump, which is I think Sanders would rate the symbolic dimension of the presidency and the the sort of like the Overton window of the debate higher. And so if he spent a lot of time fighting with Republicans in ways that really like Establish the Democratic Party is for Medicare for all or establish the Democratic Party is for a wealth tax on billionaires or establish the Democratic Party is for these things that are very sharply defined, a very sort of sharply defined social democratic agenda but couldn't pass. And so what he was able to do, very much like what Trump has done on at least some issues among Republicans – is move the Democratic Party to the left economically. Move the perception of the Democratic Party left economically. Make the Democratic Party more hostile in its day-to-day behavior and its public communications towards billionaires, towards corporations, towards Amazon, right? Never have something like you had under Obama, where he told a bunch of bank executives, I'm the guy standing between you and the pitchforks. Instead, tell a bunch of bank executives, like, I'm going to get a bunch of people with pitchforks and come to your door if you don't say yes to this. I think that Sanders would actually rate that as an important success even if it didn't lead to legislation, right? There's there's a version of Bernie Sanders that is about promising what he can do in year one and that way over promises. And then there's a version – I mean you heard uh, Ocasio-Cortez in a New York magazine profile say like in another country, Joe Biden and I would not even be in the same party, right? Like I'm a social democrat and he's this sort of center-left creature. And – I think that one of the things that would just be a Sanders project, which you can do simply by positioning, um, you don't have to pass legislation to do this, is symbolically be making the Democratic Party much more into that social democratic party for the long term in the way that Donald Trump, for all that he is. Folded to a lot of the congressional Republican agenda, he has made it a more anti-immigration party. He has made it a more anti-trade party. He has changed its public positioning in a way that is important for how Republicans are running their campaigns in the future, even if it's not reshaping the American legislative agenda so much in the present.
0: And I think this is a question where, to loop it back to staffing, right, one tough problem for Sanders would be, how do you staff at the outset? And I I don't really know. But you talk about, okay, four, eight years of Bernie Sanders. How does that change how staffers relate to the Democratic Party and the corporate sector? And I think you could see a change that's quite profound. I mean, right now, a very normal story is that Michael Froman uh, worked in the Clinton administration, then he left the Clinton administration, and he worked in the private sector, then Barack Obama won the election. While Obama was running, Froman bundled a lot of contributions for Obama. Then during the transition, Froman played an important role in, you know, helping do some staffing. Then he served in a couple different senior roles under Obama. Now he works in the private sector again. Um, I don't have any inside information on this, but I would not be at all surprised if in a Biden presidency, he comes back again into the government. And then you'll see lots of people like that who are in the government, they're in the private sector, then they're back in the government. Uh Bernie Sanders, I I think, would hire some people with corporate backgrounds just because- I would say
1: private sector is even the right term here. It's like Wall Street management consulting, right? It's like a couple of these key industries. It's not like- it's not like running a bookstore,
0: right? It's it's you know it's uh, it's considered acceptable for Democrats to go work on Wall Street, uh, to work for Hollywood, uh, to work for big technology companies, um, and to an extent, you know, a, a few other things. Or another example, like Ken Salazar was a U.S. senator. He was Interior Secretary. Then he went to go be a sort of oil and gas lobbyist. And Biden sought and touted his endorsement heading into the Colorado primary. You know, I don't know, will he have a job? But it's like the fact that Salazar went to go be an oil and gas lobbyist does not mean he's like off the team. Right. As far as Democrats are are concerned, Um, it would be scandalous. Uh, It it would be considered rude of me to say mean things about Ken Salazar on the grounds that he's an oil and gas lobbyist because he's also a loyal Democrat. Right. He he contributes to down ballot campaigns. He was secretary of the interior. He does endorsements and campaign appearances for people. Sanders would change that. Right. Not not in the blink of an eye, but over time. And he would create a political party that is more like a labor party, a social democratic party or a socialist party in which, you know, some people will like quit the party and go work in the corporate sector. But that would be considered a break with like your career. Right. That people who wanted a future in a social democratic party, they work in the nonprofit sector, they work on campaigns at other levels, they work with labor unions, maybe they do something small businessy. An anodyne, but like you don't like dip in and out of the Treasury Department and Citibank. Democrats are different from most center left parties globally, and that they have this structure as a kind of a, a centrist brokerage party in which you're not expected to sort of like divorce yourself from the corporate world and you had former obama people go on to be top executives at mcdonald's at amazon at uber at facebook and many of them would be welcome back with with open arms in the way it's currently structured and you know that's It's a it's an airy kind of stakes, but I think in some ways one of the most real ones that like a Bernie Fi Democratic Party would have a much more like austere, hair shirty feel for the people who work at its senior levels and a very different relationship to
1: to big business. Yeah, and, and this is something that I think gets underplayed because we think of the president as correctly the president of the United States, but particularly in a highly polarized era, what the president is, first and foremost, is a party leader despite the fact that you don't have parliamentary parties. And so he can't do or she can't do all that much compared to what the party leader who wins the election might be able to do in another system. But they can really change the nature of the party. The party will become, particularly if they are willing to put in the work, more of what they say it is. And and this is a way in which I think Sanders and Trump really are different and would have very different outcomes. Something that is just true about Trump is he got elected – and then he didn't have people around him and he didn't personally have interest in following through on making his own heterodoxies and what appeared at that time to be a sort of nascent right-wing populist like ideas into an ideology that the Republican Party coalesced around. So instead, he basically said, like, if you leave me to my Twitter feed, <laughs> like, I will leave you, congressional Republicans, to doing the legislating, writing the tax cut bill, doing Obamacare appeal, whatever it is you want to do. And that's more or less been the bargain, the two sides have cut. Bernie Sanders is not going to be happy with that. Part of his project, and it is, I think, currently holding him back in a significant way in the primary, but it is nevertheless a central part of his project is changing the Democratic Party. He once told me this um, line in an interview we did. I was asking about the Democratic Party. He said, look, like the Democratic Party, is it 10, 25, 100, 1,000 times better than the Republican Party? Absolutely. Is it a party of working people? No, it's not. And I'm paraphrasing him, but that's um quite close. And I think he'd be very interested in changing the nature of the Democratic Party. Now, part of the problem with that is that right now he's running to win leadership of the Democratic Party. The pe- he does not really like the party and many of the people who are key in it. The people around him really don't and keep saying that publicly. And so it's making it hard for him to get endorsements and get the kind of party signaling and broad acceptance he needs to beat Joe Biden. But nevertheless, if he did beat Joe Biden and wins the primary, and particularly if he wins the presidency. He may not be able to pass that much legislation, but he will change the nature of the Democratic Party in a way that will change the legislation the Democratic Party passes in the future. And that's something that I don't think we are always all that well positioned to analyze in American politics because we try not to think of the—we have this idea of the president as just a like the president of the country. But if you think about the presidency as a party leader position, um, it, I think, comes a lot clearer. And I think that— Both Biden and Sanders, more so than it is clear how their presidencies would differ, it is very clear how their party leadership would differ. Like, Joe Biden likes the Democratic Party as it is and will restore it to power and— Bernie Sanders does not like the Democratic Party as it is and wants to transform it, reform it, and make it something different when it wields power. That said, like
0: the the arc of history is clearly bending in Bernie's direction mm-hmm. on this score. Uh, a lot of his ideas, um, I, I think, have a lot of implementation problems. His basic idea here, which is that the younger cohort is much more left-wing, um, has like really solid <laughs> – implementation vision, and like you see it, right, that, you know, people will say, uh, you know, the kind of old bulls will say, like, why do you pay so much attention to this squad? Like, they're not the ones who gave us our majority, blah, 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 blah. The reason you pay attention to the newly elected members in the safe seats is that most members of Congress hold safe seats, right? And Overton window type stuff does apply there. Right. Like what the members in the safe seats want defines the terms of the debate. What the members in the marginal seats want determines what actually happens. But like they just position themselves slightly arbitrarily as like I am, yes, a member of the Democratic Party, but like, no, I'm not going to go that far. And so when you have that kind of turnover or something like um, Jessica Cisneros uh, was challenging Henry Cuellar in one of these safe Rio Grande Valley seats in in Texas yesterday, she came up short. She she lost by, I think, like one point. Uh, But we're talking about a 26-year-old with no real political experience, no real background. Cuellar got uh, like – Koch brothers' endorsement and money, was able to take advantage of crossover votes to get Republicans to put him over the top. Uh, Texas is going to get new congressional districts after the census, two or maybe even three, and a whole new map. And she will either be in a position to run for one of those open seats or to run in state legislature, something like that. Like she clearly has a, a bright future in Democratic Party politics. And most of the people like that, like 20-somethings who are running in tough races and impressing people and surprising them, like just are more Bernie-like in this regard than they are Biden-like. And Sanders, one reason Sanders could have such a big impact there is that he's pushing on an open door to an extent. But even if Biden goes, it's like Bidenism is not the future. Right. And it's not just that Biden is old because Bernie is also old. It's that like the people who really think that Biden's way is correct, they are also old. Right. And like they 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 I think will probably win this primary. Uh, They may beat Donald Trump, but like they are not. The, the future of this and they are going to like slow the pace of evolution. But unless um, I, I, I hate to make too firm predictions, but it's hard to see what they could do to actually like bend the trajectory.
1: I think it's a good place to end. Matt Iglesias, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. That is the show. Thank you to Matt Iglesias for being here. Um, as you might know, uh, Matt is the main host of The Weeds, which I'm on a couple times a month. And, and so is Jane Costin and Dara Lind and, and other great people. But we're also doing a cool experiment in The Weeds Facebook group, which is tens of thousands of people strong. It's a great place for policy discussion if you're not already a member. I like to participate there. It's one of my favorite places on the internet um, we're partnering with the University of Texas and spaceship media on a cool research project called the weeds conversations we're trying to develop solutions for quality online conversations which we could definitely use more of and dive into fascinating discussions with uh, other weeds listeners in the process and we're especially interested in hearing from voices and backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented so if you're interested in participating head over to the weeds Facebook group we can fill out a survey to join it's going to be a very cool experiment and hopefully we're going to learn some things that we can really Used to build some some better conversations about some issues we need to be talking about. That said, thank you to Matt Iglesias for being here, to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.